he's very good at understanding what the rules are and how to operate within the rules and to do those things in a way that gets him and others that he's working for the best result. What do you make of somebody who wrote two memoirs before he even turned 39? He's incredibly smart. When you meet him, he comes off geeky, right? He comes off as very, very uh, well thought out, very well put together. But when you get to know him, I always got a genuineness out of him that I wouldn't have expected out of somebody like him. I'm going to be honest with you. I am very, very skeptical of Pete Buttigieg. Why? Well, everyone hates the overachiever, right? The kid who volunteered at the old folks' home just for their college application. The one who actually liked it in middle school when they graded you on how organized your notebook was, or who reminded the teacher she hadn't assigned homework yet. Maybe he's a really smart guy who's worked hard and earned it. Or maybe he's calculating and power-hungry, somebody we should be wary of. So, who is Pete Buttigieg? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This where we examine power through the stories of people who have it. Today, it's Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg. Peter Paul Montgomery Buttigieg was born on January 19, 1982. Jennifer Montgomery and Joseph Buttigieg were academics. Jennifer, Pete's mother, studied and taught linguistics. And his mother's field may be why today Pete, an only child, knows like a jillion languages and shows them off all the time. Do you know what language that is? It's Norwegian. Yes. Norwegian. The name Buttigieg, if you're wondering, is not Norwegian. My father immigrated to the U.S. from, from Malta, which is one of the smallest countries in the world. You, know, you draw a line from Sicily to, to Tunisia, and it'll go through Malta. Um, and In fact, the whole country has about the same population as St. Joe County, where I live in Indiana. And the funny thing is, over there, it's like Smith. It's one of the most yes. common names. So much so that there was there was a president. I wouldn't be the first President Buttigieg in the world. There was a President Buttigieg in Malta who was next door neighbors with my family Buttigieg's and they weren't even related. Wow. <laughs> um, so uh, the, the, the etymology of the name, uh, Tajij means chicken. Mm -hmm. So it probably means like owner of poultry or lord of the poultry or something like that. <laughs> Um, but uh, if you go over there and you yell, you go into a crowded diner and say, hey, Buttigieg, everybody, a bunch of people would turn around. <laughs> that is not what happens if you go into a crowded diner in the United States and yell Buttigieg. But anyway, Joseph Buttigieg, Pete's father, is an interesting character. He passed away in 2019, but was an important scholar of Antonio Gramsci, the philosopher and Marxist thinker who wrote The Prison Notebooks. In fact, Joseph translated a major edition of Gramsci's prison notebooks, and the volume is dedicated to Pete. So yes, Pete Buttigieg does have an iconic communist text dedicated to him. Young Pete was obsessed with airplanes and the Kennedys. In eighth grade, he was middle school valedictorian, which is a thing, I guess, and gave a speech so rousing, one classmate remembered her grandmother saying, quote, Peter would make a great politician. Buttigieg would have been 13 or 14 years old. Like so many people we talk about on this show, Buttigieg got a private education. First at a Montessori school and then at a private Catholic high school, St. Joseph's, which at just under $10,000 a year today is comparatively reasonable. 
but comparatively unreasonable versus public school, which is free. Anyway, fellow alums include Tracy Page Johnson, the creator of Blues Clues, Brendan Bayless, the lead singer of Humphreys McGee, and James Muller, the guy who became mayor of South Bend after Buttigieg. So when he was a senior in high school, he enters the JFK essay competition. That's Adam Wren, a national politics features correspondent for Insider, formerly known as Business Insider, or BI. The competition he's referencing is the Profile and Courage Essay Contest, which is a thing that the John F. Kennedy Library Foundation puts on. He basically writes about Bernie Sanders. So this is in the year 2000, when not a lot of people outside of Vermont are talking about Bernie Sanders, but Pete Buttigieg writes this essay that praises him and his political independence. Here's a bit of the winning essay. Quote, A new attitude has swept American politics. Candidates have discovered that it is easier to be elected by not offending anyone rather than by impressing the voters. Politicians are rushing for the center, careful not to stick their necks out on issues. Most Democrats shy away from the word liberal like a horrid accusation. Yes, Buttigieg really wrote that. The essay continues. Sanders' courage is evident in the first word he uses to describe himself. Socialist. In a country where communism is still the dirtiest of ideological dirty words, in a climate where even liberalism is considered radical, and socialism is immediately and perhaps willfully confused with communism, a politician dares to call himself a socialist? 20 years later, Buttigieg was running for president. Here's Buttigieg on stage with Bernie in 2020 during one of the debates. Mayor Buttigieg, I want to get, I want to get you in on this because, you know, in 2000, you, re- you wrote an award-winning essay. You praised Senator Sanders. You specifically praised him for embracing socialism. You have now since said that you are concerned about his policies. But I am curious about this. Are you out of touch with your own generation? Millennials, by a big chunk, embrace his version of democratic socialism. You do not. Are you out of touch with your generation? No. Look, I, it's true that uh, I was into Bernie before it was cool. He was uh, a <laughs> congressman at the time. And the qualities I admired then are qualities I still respect a great deal. I never said that I agree with every part of his policy views, then or now, but I appreciate that it, at least he's straightforward and honest about him. Whenever I had to write essays about politicians in high school, I always picked Joe McCarthy. But back to Buttigieg, who was class president and valedictorian, and planned to study international relations and Arabic at Harvard. Who else was at Harvard in the early 2000s? started getting funny emails one night that somebody was setting up this weird computer thing, and I signed up because everybody did. Uh, and that little computer thing was called Facebook. Uh, joined it the day it started um, and had no idea that it would turn into what it became. Mark Zuckerberg wasn't the only interesting character at Harvard at the time. Jared Kushner was there too, and so was Natalie Portman. What was Buttigieg like at Harvard? Here's his Harvard dorm mate, Stephen Coe. At some point, Peter acquired a didgeridoo, an Australian Aboriginal instrument. And not only could he generate a tone with it, but he also taught himself circular breathing so that he could continuously breathe in and out while blowing on the didgeridoo, which meant that he could hold this note continuously forever, it seemed. It's classic Peter. But Harvard involves more than learning to play unusual instruments. 
And at the time, things were happening in the world. There was the whole 9-11 rigmarole, and then the wars on terror in Afghanistan and Iraq. Buttigieg was a politically active student. And according to the Washington Post, he was a memorable speaker at protests at the time. I'm paraphrasing the Post, but in 2003, a week before the invasion of Iraq, an emergency anti-war rally attracted about 350 people. Buttigieg spoke, without notes, on behalf of the campus Democrats. Quote, he was brilliant, according to a guy who was there. The crowd was immediately attracted to him. On the other hand, he seemed more like a partisan than a pacifist. I'm not sure he would have been there if the Democrats hadn't come out against the invasion. Eventually, Buttigieg got a regular column in the Harvard Crimson, where he once wrote about how the music of Dave Matthews changed after 9-11. In his final column, Buttigieg talks about how the American left needed to reclaim compassion, strength, and morality. The column's okay. But notably, Buttigieg seemed to tease future political plans. Quote, Columns are short, but time is expansive. And I know of nothing more worthy to fill the approaching years than the project to turn these principles from cliched and overused words into effective political values. End quote. Buttigieg graduated in 2004, majoring in history and literature. Here's Adam Wren. Pete is sort of searching for what he wants to do in life after he graduates Harvard. And for as much as he had ambition, it wasn't always clear to others what he wanted to do or to himself. He worked for a little bit of a time and as an, an investigative reporting unit in Chicago. He interned on several political campaigns, including then-Congressman Joe Donnelly. That's Joe Donnelly, one-time senator from Indiana. Buttigieg interned for Donnelly way back when Donnelly was first trying to get into Congress. Pete learned how to wave as a politician from Senator Donnelly. And so he sort of would do any low-level task necessary to learn the ropes of campaigning. You may not have heard of Joe Donnelly, but Joe Donnelly may be one of the reasons Pete Buttigieg ran for president. In some ways, it is a, a, a father and son type of relationship, although that may be overstating it a little bit, but they are certainly friendly. In 2018, for example, Joe Donnelly was up for re-election in Indiana's Senate race, and Pete Buttigieg watched the returns in South Bend and saw Joe Donnelly, this mentor in his life, lose his re-election to now Senator Mike Braun. And as Buttigieg was looking at the state results coming in from Indiana statewide, he thought to himself, you know, there's really no path for me in a red state like Indiana. Senator Braun, it's worth noting, when asked if he supported same-sex marriage, responded, quote, I believe in traditional marriage. In 2021, Senator Braun was also one of a handful of Republicans who supported Trump's attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 election, although he did change his mind after the January 6th insurrection. Remember that? Anyway, back to the mid-2000s. Nothing has stuck for Buttigieg. So like a typical directionless 20-something, he winds up at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. The New Yorker dug up a few of his fellow Rhodesies. Quote, Marissa Duran, a lawyer in New York, said Buttigieg was a good egg. He does kind of look like an egg. Who, when he wasn't leading a politics-themed discussion group, liked to hole up and play Risk or Settlers of Catan. The resume is almost campaign ready, but Buttigieg is missing something. At that time in the national conversation, there was sort of a lane for you 
in a middle to moderate red state where you could be embraced as a Democrat if you had some business experience, some experience in the real world, so to speak. McKinsey and Company. Does that name send a chill through your spine? If not, you probably don't have the same bias towards the field of consulting that I do. Consultants at the big firms are hired guns that go to companies, government agencies, and foreign governments to advise them on how to make more money, often at the expense of literally everybody else. I won't go too deep into Buttigieg's time at McKinsey, but here he is being grilled by a bearded bald man at the New York Times. You have been on the front lines of corporate downsizing. You've been on the front lines of corporate price fixing. You've been on the front whoa, lines whoa, whoa. That's, that's, of, our, that's, of our misadventures. I'm sorry, that's... Of our misadventures in foreign policy. You've had direct experience of many of the things that make a lot of young people very angry about the way that this country uh, is operating right now. You don't seem to embody that anger. So the proposition that I've been on the front lines of corporate price fixing is just to get that out of the way. You worked um, for a company that was fixing bread prices. Uh, no. I worked for a consulting company that had a client that may have been involved in fixing, or was apparently in a scandal. I was not aware of the Canadian uh, bread pricing scandal until last night. A Canadian bread pricing scandal might not sound like a big deal, but McKinsey's also the firm that, according to the New York Times, quote, advised Purdue Pharma how to turbocharge opioid sales, and according to ProPublica, quote, helped immigration and customs enforcement implement the Trump administration's immigration policies. If you're thinking, wait a minute, those things happened after Pete Buttigieg was there, it's about a pattern of behavior. Actual books have been written about McKinsey's dubious business practices, which go way back. In fact, activities McKinsey promoted in part led to the 2008 financial crisis. For more on McKinsey, check out Duff McDonald's 2013 book, The Firm, The Inside Story of McKinsey. Back to Buttigieg used his time working at McKinsey as sort of a, a talking point. And that certainly changed in 2020, in the run-up to 2020, when being connected to McKinsey uh, was something, particularly in, in some democratic circles, that was seen as not acceptable or verboten. Buttigieg joins McKinsey in 2007. In 2008, he takes a leave of absence to work on Jill Long Thompson's campaign for governor of Indiana, which, like, I didn't know you could do that. Jill Long Thompson lost, so Buttigieg went back to McKinsey. By 2009, I guess he'd had enough of corporate downsizing and fixing bread prices. Pete Buttigieg walks into a Navy recruiting office in South Bend. It was next door to a vape store, and he enlists. The recruiting officer miswrites Buttigieg's Harvard minor in Arabic as aerobics. How does he have the time to do all of this stuff, and isn't 27 a little old to join the Navy? He's always been sort of a, a great manager of his time and of his schedule, and he had military service in his background. His maternal grandfather was a pilot in the armed forces, and he had grown up seeing his flight log. I believe he still has his grandfather's flight log in his possession. And so grew up in a, in a family that valued military service and sort of had this sense, uh, particularly when he worked on the Obama campaign as, as someone who went door to door for Obama in Iowa back in 2007, 2008. He went to these houses in the middle of nowhere, Iowa, and noticed a lot of people his age, you know, were shipping off for 
to fight overseas. And as someone of privilege, at least academically, if not economically, he felt a debt to his country in his telling of it, that he needed to participate in national service. And so he really seemed to feel the call to, to serve in the military. Because he's a brilliant genius who went to Harvard and was a Rhodes Scholar and worked at McKinsey, Buttigieg doesn't really have to do any of the normal stuff and immediately becomes a direct commission officer in the Navy Reserve, which means he didn't get shipped off to the Middle East just yet. That gave him time to make a first run at statewide office. Indiana Treasurer of State. Yeah, that's what they call it. This 2010 race really revolved, I believe Richard Murdoch was a geologist by training, and uh, Richard Murdoch was someone who uh, was seen as an up-and-comer in GOP politics. And at that point in Indiana, whoever was going to be the Democratic candidate for treasurer was sort of being offered up as a sacrificial lamb. GOP politics, particularly at that point, even though Obama won Indiana statewide in 2008, it was still a difficult place and a difficult time for a Democratic candidate to do well statewide. He only received about 38 or so percent of the vote that year, and it was a pretty tough way to get into politics. For context, here's Richard Murdoch just two years later in 2012 when he was running for Senate. I struggled with it myself for a long time, but I came to realize life is that gift from God. And I think even when life begins in that horrible situation of rape, that it is uh, something that God intended to happen. One thing you need to learn if you ever want to run for office? Never give me everything I need to clip in 12 seconds. You don't even need context for that clip. It's some guy saying that God intended rape to happen. But that guy beat Pete Buttigieg in 2010. We'll be back after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. Today we're looking at Mayor Pete. So when did that guy get to be Mayor Pete anyway? A young man with a funny name and no political experience managed to win the confidence of a community at a turning point. Well, at least he's going to get a job, you know. <laughs> the mayor-elect's mother said what any mother might say at a time like this, but she also shared information only a mother would know. What do we need to know about this guy? He's enthusiastic. He worked extremely hard to study economics, politics, philosophy, history, the way things have worked in the past in South Bend and in the country. So he's done everything he could to prepare himself for the task. It's 2011, and Pete Buttigieg has been elected mayor of South Bend, Indiana, which was named South Bend after a turn the St. Joseph River takes. Here's Adam Wren. So South Bend is in the, the northern part of Indiana, and it's in some ways culturally more like Michigan than it is Indiana. And in some ways, it's more Chicago than it is Michigan. There's actually a town called Notre Dame, proper uh, where the, the University of Notre Dame actually is. So South Bend is actually this sort of working class, diverse town that is different than Notre Dame. It's less white. It's less upwardly mobile. It's less educated. It's actually much more diverse than you might guess. South Bend's about 50% black and brown, 26% African-American and 15.7% Latinx. The demographics are not exactly what you would expect in a Midwestern Indiana town. That's Sam Santeus, the executive director of La Casa de Amistad, a Latinx youth and community center in South Bend. 
We're also interestingly conservative but liberal all at the same time. You know, Indiana's a pretty red state, but South Bend is is a pretty blue city. And so the blend of two kind of provides a good opportunity for a wide range of thought from local elected officials to just people that you would meet in the grocery store. You'll kind of see the whole spectrum. In 2012, when Buttigieg actually becomes mayor, unemployment is at 10.4%. And South Bend is listed by Newsweek as one of America's dying cities. South Bend's had a major turnaround. I moved here in 2008, and there was not a lot going on. Less going on then than there is now, but when the economy just tanked, it was a hard time here. And so it was it was a challenging time, I think, for the whole country, but especially for cities like South Bend that had already been kind of on the ropes. And then the ropes just got worse, and, and we, we were trying to figure out what, what to do. Yes, in 2008, America had a financial crisis. But it was hard times in South Bend before that crisis hit. Have you ever heard of a Studebaker? Yes, this year, craftsmanship makes the big difference in the low-price field. And Studebaker 57 pledges you craftsmanship, quality, and satisfaction throughout its entire line. Studebaker was a classic American car, and a lot of Studebakers used to be made in South Bend, Indiana. But you don't see a lot of Studebakers driving around today, do you? The company shut down its South Bend operations in December 1963, which was almost 20 years before Buttigieg was born. Some of the old-timers talk about it like it just happened. That's one of the amazing things. I mean, there are some parts of town where you would think that the closure of Studebaker was something that happened a couple years ago, not 50. You might be wondering, how did it take South Bend 50 years to figure it out? Well, look at the entire Midwest, parts of the Northeast, and anywhere else manufacturing was a thing. They also haven't figured it out. But this is what Pete Buttigieg gets a lot of credit for, supposedly turning things around in South Bend. What I think Mayor Pete was able to do here, though, was I think try to, more than anything, inspire some hope and really start some things and and to get folks at the grassroots level, like myself, to say, what is it that you want to see here? What do you want to do? What are are some things that you want to be involved in? How do you think the community could be better? And really created a method to try to coalesce some pride around the city. And that's when I really felt like I was getting more engaged in the city. Like, yeah, like we're, we're, we got this. Like we were on the ropes, but we just got a good shot in. And, uh, and I think this is turning around for us. And so f- folks had hope. And once there's more hope, that, that, that grows. And I think he was good at that, at talking about the wins, celebrating those wins, and helping engage more people in the process of, of continuing to move forward. You know who else presided over the turnaround of a city, not on the ropes, but in the midst of some deindustrialization and redevelopment? Bernard Sanders. That's right, the guy Pete Buttigieg wrote an essay about in high school. Bernie was mayor of Burlington, Vermont, and played an important role in the revitalization of that city's waterfront. Here's Adam Wren. So Pete Buttigieg had a really controversial two terms as mayor because he was interested in doing things in a different way. One of the first things he did was tearing down abandoned houses. So it was actually a thousand properties in a thousand days. This was probably one of his most controversial things he did as mayor. But basically, he would raise houses. Raise, as in R-A-Z-E, demolish. In certain disadvantaged neighborhoods and tore down about a thousand structures in the first three years of his time as mayor. The idea was to tear down or repair a thousand homes in a thousand days. And getting rid of abandoned homes is one way to solve urban blight. 
In 2019, the South Bend Tribune looked into a thousand homes in a thousand days. Actually, it was more than a thousand homes. 1,122 to be exact, with about 40% repaired and 60% demolished. That's approximately 673 homes destroyed. A resident of one of those neighborhoods told the South Bend Tribune they turned it into a ghost block. I would like to live in an actual neighborhood where people are, end quote. But Buttigieg wrote about this in one of his memoirs, quote, In some ways, it was a classic example of data-driven management paying off. But the most important impact of the effort was unquantifiable. Hitting such an ambitious goal made it easier for residents to believe we could do very difficult things as a city, at a time when civic confidence had been in short supply for decades, end quote. But it's data that was the problem. Some metrics used to decide whether or not to demolish a house didn't necessarily capture homes that could be renovated. Some people even bought homes and then found out they were on the list of houses slated for demolition afterwards. Meanwhile, what's going to happen to all these vacant plots? Weeds? As of August 2019, according to the South Bend Tribune, quote, South Bend officials say that while there is no grand plan for the vacant lots, the city intends to help develop a portion of them, end quote. On the other hand, here's Samson Teus. South Bend in its heyday was 130, 140,000 people lived here. And there's 100,000 people that live here now. And so the housing needs in the area changed. Now, has everything that has transpired since then and through that program and through others been equitable and always impact every community the same? No, there's been disparate impact of some of that, specifically in low-income communities, of course, especially in communities of color, African-American community, um, and most recently, the, the Latino community that, that's growing here here in South Bend. So, so I would say that. Okay, but... Most critics of the program said that by and large, what happened was good. Most of the homes had been deserted, right? So no one got evicted, so they're house- rarely, right? By and large, these were just homes. There was one actually a block from La Casa. We actually celebrated when it was torn down. Had been empty since no one could remember how long it had been empty and it just sat and it was constantly broken into and falling over and no one else was going to buy that thing and tear it down and interestingly now there's an urban garden growing where that house used to be and so that's what happened right were homes that no one had lived in and had gotten into such a condition that nobody would spend the money to save them and they needed to be torn down Now, there were some challenges, right? There were some incidents in which somebody had maybe purchased a home and was trying to renovate it and wasn't able to, and and then either it was torn down or was put a demolition order on and, and things happened. And I know some people that were negatively impacted like that. But if you think about less than a handful of those out of a thousand homes that got torn down, from an outcomes perspective, the program was a win for the community in terms of removing blight. This all sounds pretty good. Mayor Pete may not have gotten it entirely right, but it seems like he got it partially right. I asked Sam Santeus about another Mayor Pete program, but one which hasn't gotten as much attention. Mayor Pete had a group of local Latino leaders he would meet with every other month or so quarterly. We'd meet at one of the local restaurants and he would give an update on here's some things the city's working on, projects, and then he would give us an opportunity to tell him what's the new thing at La Casa or different things. And at one of those meetings, one of the leaders of our local Catholic parish had mentioned, have we ever thought about doing an identification program for the city? 
City IDs give immigrants, young people, older folks, people experiencing homelessness, and really everyone else who doesn't want to deal with the DMV, a form of identification they can use to prove they are who they say they are. All it is is an alternative to a driver's license. You'd be surprised how often you're asked for your identification. Once you really think about it, you're like, man, I get my ass for my ID for everything, from renting a paddle boat to go on the canal to you name it, I get asked for my driver's license. When you don't really need a driver's license, you just need something that proves who you are. So what did Mayor Pete do when the Latinx leaders proposed some form of city ID? Mayor Pete right away was like, well, we'll take it back and we'll, we'll look at that. And in, in true fashion, he assigned somebody to do that. And the follow up was pretty quick. And we actually were moving forward on creating an actual city managed identification program. And I forget around when kind of in the, the, the pipeline of all that, it came back from the, the city that if we did a program like that, it was considered a public benefit. Um, there were some kind of freedom of information laws that would impact that. And and potentially whoever's gotten one of the city identification cards, it could be a list of names that could be discoverable or, or forced to be given out publicly. And if you paid attention to the Trump administration, you could immediately see how such a list could lead to deportations. And so the thought was like, is, is that an issue? And both sides kind of wrangled with like, well, is that good? Is that bad? I mean, what do we want to do? And in that con- those conversations came up, the thought was, well, what if a private agency like La Casa de Amistad ran an identification program that then the city accepted? Like, we will accept somebody who has that card to open a water bill to use one of our public parks and reserve it for an event. And if other agencies would also accept it, aka our library and other places, then it would be just as good as an actual city-run municipal identification program. And so we, we kind of moved forward with that. And so the thought was, well, La Casa could run it. We offered, we said we would be more than happy to do this as long as he put out some type of executive kind of statement or action. I forget what it was finally called, but from him saying, you know, like we will accept it as identification for city services. And we move forward with that. And we've been operating that program now. Mayor James Mueller has continued to authorize that for use. Um, And we've actually expanded a similar program now to uh, several other Indiana cities. And we've actually helped some cities around the country. Um, We've served as consultants to others about kind of like steps to take, things to do, things to think about, equipment to buy, how you run your process. Um, And we've helped other communities do the same now. So we've served as like a role model and an example to others about something that's possible through community action. Another pretty decent idea. But where are the bodies buried? I'm just kidding. There aren't any bodies. This isn't an episode about Hillary Clinton. There is a lot we could talk about. The controversial firing of the city's black police chief, Daryl Boykins. The uninvestigated alleged suicide of Jihad Vasquez, who may have been murdered. And a serious look at the redevelopment projects Mayor Pete pursued to redevelop South Bend. Basically, as Pete Buttigieg continues to climb the political ladder, an investigative journalist really should go out to South Bend and take a serious look at things. And that's not just because I'm skeptical of Mayor Pete. It's because we need to have a clear understanding of who people in power are, what they've done or haven't done. Before he ran for president, Pete Buttigieg won a second term as mayor of South Bend, went to Afghanistan. Yeah, a deputy mayor covered for him for a little under a year and came out as gay in a state where that isn't necessarily the easiest thing to do, especially for a politician. He meets Chastin Glesman on Hinge and they get married. In 2016, the New York Times profiled Buttigieg. The headline? The first gay president. Pete Buttigieg was going places. 
what places? I think we all knew, we knew something was coming. And uh, we all in South Bend knew that he was planning to do something more. You know, I've never been on his inside circle or anything. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk, a lot of rumors, a lot of this or that. He's going to be trying to run for governor or whatever. And we all knew he would do something above or something politically outside of, of the city of South Bend. And we all thought he could run for president. And when he announced it, you know, that's pretty cool, right? Yeah, I live in South Bend. There's a guy from here running for president. I'm here to join you to make a little news. My name is Pete Buttigieg. They call me Mayor Pete. I'm a proud son of South Bend, Indiana, and I am running for president of the United States. Buttigieg did pretty well in the election. The guy was literally a two-term mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and he became a serious contender. He placed highly in Iowa and did pretty well in New Hampshire and Nevada, too. I didn't think he'd get as far as he did, to be honest. I've always liked him. I liked working with him. I think I've been clear that we've always had a good relationship. But I didn't think that he would have gone as far as he did. Just young guy out of South Bend, Indiana, but he did. And I, I was honestly proud, proud for our community, proud to say I worked with them, and excited to see what he's going to continue to do, right? He's younger than I am. Buttigieg didn't win the whole thing, obviously, and he didn't get picked to be Biden's vice president, although he was almost certainly on the short list. He did get picked to be Secretary of Transportation, though. More after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. Today, it's no longer Mayor Pete. It's Secretary Buttigieg. Transportation is a big department, so I got in touch with somebody who's, like, worked there before. My name is Beth Osborne. I'm the director of an organization called Transportation for America. Before she was at T4A, Transportation for America, Beth Osborne worked in the Department of Transportation, which oversees everything from highways to aviation to boat stuff. It's a lot. How would you have approached a lot of this as diverse from highways to rail to aviation to maritime? How would you have approached all this? Oh, my God, what a hard question. I mean, just recognizing that nobody can possibly come in with that breadth of knowledge. There is no one who has a deep experience in running transit, running a state department of transportation, Amtrak, a class one railroad, airports, airlines, the St. Lawrence Seaway. (laughs) air traffic control, motor carriers, pipelines. No, that person does not exist. So you come in with the skills you have and you have to be good at helping to pick the right people to run each of those operating administrations to help make the right choices. The, The Secretary of Transportation sets some high level priorities for all of those agencies, but recognizes they'll play out differently in each one. And I think most of what I do comes from my being stung from past losses. I can say I don't always win. In fact, I often don't win. But I learn from not winning, and I don't forget. And uh, I got to be work in the secretary's office during the Obama administration under Secretary LaHood and Secretary Fox. And what I think we did not do enough of is using the agency's authority to make permanent change to change the standards, to change the measures, to change the guidance given to the funded agencies 
to focus on 21st century needs, to use better tools and to uh, use them to support better policy outcomes. So why is getting around America so difficult? And what does the Secretary of Transportation have to do with that? There are a lot of authorities that the U.S. Department of Transportation does not have. The way the program was designed was for the feds to raise money that they then pass out to state departments of transportation. And that's the level where all the decision making is made. So the the number one decision maker is the governor who controls the state DOT. We don't tend to think about that as the level, but really the governor is the emperor over the program. And so if your program is dangerous, or your program is spending money to expand highways and further disconnect black and brown communities, that's your governor who is overseeing that decision and making that priority. And that's the way the program's designed. However, there are things that the Secretary of Transportation can do. The Secretary of Transportation and the U.S. Department of Transportation established several standards. They give instruction as to how federal dollars should be spent. So, Right now, they actually require when highway projects are being designed that the department make 20-year projections about what traffic will be. By the way, it's something is completely unknowable. You have to know what the economy is going to be 20 years out, and any projection over 18 months is considered unreliable. So uh, they're set up to fail, but they tend to just assume that traffic will go up forever. So then they overbuild, which tends to encourage people to drive more. So we see carbon emissions go up and we see more division in the neighborhoods around the highways, which tends to be minority neighborhoods. The USDOT could instead say, you know what we want you to look at? We want you to consider what the the long-term carbon impacts will be of your project, including how your project might encourage more driving and how that would increase carbon emissions. We want you to look at not the speed of vehicles on that roadway, but whether or not people are actually able to get to more work and non-work necessities with greater convenience, particularly people outside of a car. We'll compare whether or not the benefits are being equally shared between majority white communities or wealthier communities and low-income communities or black and brown communities. And we will give you the instructions on how to measure those things. They can also set standards that start to disallow dangerous highway type standards for the design of a roadway in areas where people are, where businesses are, where there's a lot of points of conflict and help folks recognize the only safe way to proceed is to have slower moving roadways that accommodate people in and out of their car in commercial corridors and places where people live. I asked Beth Osborne the question that you might be thinking. Is the United States going to get a transportation infrastructure that's equitable, sustainable insofar as, you know, getting to carbon neutral and uh, approaching the climate crisis and moves Americans around quickly and efficiently? Well, I think the good news is the things you need to do to accomplish all three of those objectives are the same. So uh, and it's all different than what we provide now. So we can certainly do that. It's going to involve a true rethinking about what we value and what we measure. But if we do approach this through the lens of making it easier for people to get around both in and out of their car and determining 
whether or not they can get where they're going rather than what the average speed is on the way, we can hit all of those priorities at once. I will say it will also require localities to consider how they let their communities develop. Because if we're going to continue to develop the way we have for the last several decades, where your home is far from your work, and it's far from the grocery, and the grocery is far from the school, and the school is far from the hospital, there's really no way to efficiently serve that. And if you want to live in a community like that, that's fine. But it means you don't mind inconvenient transportation because that's what it was designed for. It was designed for pockets of quiet places, but not for convenient transportation between them. And I think letting folks understand that they kind of made their decision when they chose to live in a community like that, and there's no amount of money that will make that convenient, is going to be an essential part of investing in places where you actually can make connections much more convenient. And those are places that are built with the destinations you need built closer to where you live and closer to each other. Pete Buttigieg was sworn in as Secretary of Transportation on February 2nd, 2021. That's kind of a while ago. So how is he doing so far? You know, I I think it's too early. We've heard a lot of good proposals, and he definitely talks about transportation in a positive way. He gets a lot of credit for talking about the way urban highways have been harmful to Black and brown communities, uh, and they've been devastating and generationally so. But he's not the first secretary to talk about that. My former boss, Secretary Anthony Fox, also a mayor of Charlotte, talked about how his community growing up was personally affected by a highway that cut their community off from jobs and opportunity. So I think uh, uh, Secretary Buttigieg has the opportunity to build on the momentum and the attention brought to this by those who came before him and take it that next step. And I'm looking for those actions. You know, is he going to require people to compare access to jobs and necessities for those who come from poor communities might not have access to a car? He doesn't need Congress to tell him to do that. Is he going to start to look at the carbon impacts of transportation projects? The Obama administration established a performance measure that applied to every Department of Transportation and Metropolitan Planning Organization, which is the regional planning organizations in all cities, to measure CO2 from their transportation system. It was a final rule when President Obama left office. It was repealed by the Trump administration. This is a copy and a paste job to reestablish this rule, something I would love to see. And very, very soon he could give guidance to all DOTs about how to determine the carbon impacts of projects on a project level as opposed to systematic. There are all those sorts of activities that he could take. So far, we've seen the American Jobs Plan, which has some very good intention behind it. Now we have to see how that turns into actual legislation and actual programs, because it's a big difference between a paragraph and a program. We've heard interest in revisiting some of the standard documents that the Department of Transportation puts out. One particularly geeky sounding one is the Manual of Uniform Traffic Control Devices that determines things like 
those red painted bus lanes and when they're okay, or whether or not you can put a crossing in the middle of a roadway for pedestrians. Right now, the manual says that a few hundred people have to jaywalk and risk their lives before you can justify putting a crosswalk in there. Doesn't sound like a particularly safe approach. Does he reform that approach and update it? It's something within his power. It's something he's shown interest in but we haven't seen the action yet. So um, there's a lot of hopeful things coming out of the administration and advocates like me are waiting for that to turn into products in action. Secretary Buttigieg faces a lot of big challenges. And unless he really screws things up, he's going to be somebody we continue to see. This is a guy who has already run for president. Fixing a city in decline isn't easy. And that's a job he chose just like he chose to go to Afghanistan and to come out as gay in Indiana. Pete Buttigieg is, I have to admit, pretty impressive. And although I'm still skeptical, I'm starting to wonder if I had any real reason to feel that way. Pete Buttigieg is a politician, and all politicians are calculating and power-hungry. But it seems like Pete Buttigieg is also a smart guy who's worked hard and earned it. Next time on Who Is, we cover a total, as the kids are calling it, girl boss. A very, very wealthy woman who has become one of the most important political actors in the game. A woman who some attribute to being a key player in the election of President Donald Trump, and who is funding the platform of choice for America's young conservatives. It's Rebecca Mercer, next week on Who Is. A sincere thank you to our guests. Sam Santayas, Executive Director of La Casa de Amistad, a community center which has been serving the needs of immigrants and residents of South Bend, Indiana, since 1973. Beth Osborne, Director of Transportation for America. Previously, Osborne worked at the U.S. Department of Transportation. And Adam Wren, a features correspondent at Insider's Washington Bureau, who's been following Pete Buttigieg since Buttigieg ran for State Treasurer of Indiana in 2010. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, your host. Michael McDowell is our producer. Laura Tillman is our associate producer. Mona Hassan is our writer. Editing and mixing by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira and Amanda Earle. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. At Now This, Tina Exaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and subscribe, and tune in next week.